Above our small street, three poplars in the distance flexed their spines against the shift of air. I knew this because. 1869, By 1689, the 28th year of his reign, the Kangxi Emperor had suppressed the revolt of the three feudatories, recovered the territory of Taiwan. In the end, they decided to go to Bone Daddy's. It was full of mist and people and shishimi and chicken stock. Outside, Soho. None of us had ever paid much attention to the tree before. It was just a tree, as Terry told the woman from Radio London during the height of the standoff. Until all of this, everybody knows about. I was always jealous of my friends who had sisters, sisters with long hair and stacks of magazines scattered across the floor, sisters with posters on their walls and boys in their bedrooms, sisters who were small and sweet and sat willing. As usual, the sisters get all the glamour. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. We thought we'd kick off this edition with our contributors, or our stories at least. Here's Rosdenine, who stepped in to give us a few lines from Ali Smith's stirring story, Wake. Above our small street, three poplars in the distance flexed their spines against the shift of air. I knew this because I was performing, looking out of the window. I was play acting insouciance. I was trying to stay calm. I was doing this because you were painting on one of the long walls in our front room. In another possible version of our story, that last sentence would have meant you were redecorating, or if we happened to be in one of our more aesthetically inspired periods, painting a mural on one of the walls of our front room—a landscape scene, a version of Livia's garden like the one we once saw in the museum in Rome. But this was right now, and you were writing oversized words on the wall with red paint. You were doing it with such urgency that paint was dripping down into itself from the sentences above to the words below. Here's Yan Liangke, all the way from Beijing, with translator Carlos Rojas turning interpreter to give us his version in English of the Kangxi Emperor. 一八六九年，康熙二十八年时，清圣祖平定了三藩之乱，收复了远海台湾后。By 1689, the 28th year of his reign, the Kangxi Emperor had suppressed the revolt of the three feudatories, recovered the territory of Taiwan, and razed the city of Albazan. After most of the Russian Tsar's soldiers in the besieged city had perished from hunger, the Tsar sued for peace with the Qing court and signed the Treaty of Nerchinsk. In the period that followed, the world was at peace, prosperity beckoned, and the emperor's mood was as bright as the sun and moon. Why did you want to go back to the 17th century? Although the Kangxi Emperor is a work of historical fiction, it is nevertheless characterized by strong qualities of modernism and realism. In fact, I didn't feel at all as though I were describing something that had happened more than 300 years ago, and instead, it was as though the story's emperor, the painter, and other characters could easily have existed in contemporary China. Painter Di's art is so realistic; it's deadly. Is too much realism dangerous for writers in contemporary China as well? I've always thought that the reality of fiction and the reality of life are completely different from one another, and even though they are frequently entangled to the point that the former is treated as equivalent to the latter, this is particularly true of contemporary China's policies on literary realism, where confusion between 
the reality of art and life results in many cases of regulation and censorship that determine what can and cannot be written, meaning that some writings focusing on reality can be perceived as being quite dangerous. As for myself, my belief in literature is not grounded on a dichotomy between either praising something or opposing it, but rather it pivots on the realism and complexity of the work spirit. I'm Ross Raisin, and my story is titled Tree Huggers. None of us had ever paid much attention to the tree before. It was just a tree, as Terry told the woman from Radio London during the height of the standoff, until all of this. Everybody knows about the tree now, this beech tree, to be exact, whose 204 years put it at the same age, if he was still alive, as Charles Darwin. The 204 figure was initially contested by Pridehaven, but it became so frequently circulated that Pridehaven stopped contesting the tree's age to focus instead on the more pressing matter of the legal challenge. What was the seed for your 10-storey beech tree? <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I would say that the seed for the story, just to use the rather cheesy prompt that I've just been, uh, I've just been happily given, was an actual tree in an estate that neighboured the estate that I lived in when I lived in London. And the tree became a kind of lightning rod for community feeling against gentrification, to use one word, or regeneration, to use the euphemism that was used by the developers, and became a battle as to whether the tree would be saved or whether the tree would be chopped down. It was just always a fascinating thing, just living next door to it, in an estate that was still intact. It wasn't being knocked down. But to walk through it every day on the school run and just see what was happening. And what was happening was that some of the people that lived there were being, in effect, evicted. They were being moved out of the place where they and their families had lived for often for generations. You know, and it's worth saying as well that some things have been brought into the area that I think are positive. But my overriding feeling, I think, is one of sadness because something has been lost. Even though a lot of the story is, well, all of the story is made up, really. And a lot of it is a bit ridiculous. Me having a bit of fun with quite a lot of the elements of it. The basic through line of the story, until the ending, certainly, is kind of what happened. It generated a huge amount of interest. The petition gained a lot of signatures. And there was a real movement to protect the tree and stop it being felled, which in a real life episode, I'm not going to say what happens in the story, but in the real life episode, the tree was eventually felled. And it was a really sad day. It was horrible walking past it the day after it had been chopped down with my children, who I think had not quite understood that that was going to be the resolution of that particular story. I think they thought, you know, because they saw the tree and they saw the, the campaign around it, like the, the visual campaign around it and thought, well, we've saved the tree, but we didn't. With the government cracking down on protesters and XR moving away from disruption, can we still make a difference by heading out onto the streets? Yes, I think that it's important that people make their voice voices heard. If we didn't do that, then a lot of heinous things, I think, would be allowed to escalate that otherwise wouldn't. When I read a story like this, I start asking myself, can fiction, can made-up stuff have an impact on the real world? That's a big question, isn't it? The answer is yes. Of course, fiction can have an impact on the real world. No, it's not going to be as immediate and tangible as other forms of action, to use that word. But if we didn't have it, we'd be screwed. And here's Lizzie Stewart staring down the barrel of her graphic story, Gorgon. I was always jealous of my friends who had sisters. 
Sisters with long hair and stacks of magazines scattered across the floor. Sisters with posters on their walls and boys in their bedrooms. Sisters who were small and sweet and sat willingly through hours of plaiting and polishing and maternal mimicry. I pined for those sisters, longed for them. I had a sister. She was 17 years older than me, my parents always evading the question, was she too early or was I too late? It had to be that one of us was at fault. I hoped it was her. A few months after I was born, she left home to study nursing in a city five hours north of ours. She came home twice a year, though I barely remember those visits. Then she moved abroad. So how did you get started on Gorgon? I was thinking about it and my friend sent me a message from Mexico where she was visiting a petrified waterfall. And there was a photo of her on this waterfall that was sort of so heavy and with minerals that it had turned to stone and she was stood on top of it. Mostly I liked the, the idea of something being petrified, so I um, kept coming back to that. So it, I suppose it came from my best friend's holiday to Mexico. Gorgon is full of muddy greens and terracotta, smudges of darkening grey. At what point does a colour palette like that evolve? The minute I knew it was woodlandy, I knew it had to be sludgy. <laughs> and I, I potentially leaned towards the sludgy anyway. Sludge is your natural element. Yeah, very much. I'm currently wearing a very sludge green top. It's very much what I'm drawn to. Yeah, so it's sort of the story tell, without sounding absolutely unbearable, the story sort of tells you what the colours need to be. There's a sweet spot with the sludge. You want it to be bright and yet sludgy and not dirgy and sludgy. There's, um, you've got to balance it. Yeah, totally. You've got to get your sludge right. Exactly. I was also hoping, if you wouldn't mind, you could just do us the maths. Is a picture still worth exactly 1,000 words or a little more or a little less? Well, I'm horrendous at maths, so um, I'm, not, I'm not the one to ask. Um, <laughs> I think they do different things. I think, for me, writing and drawing, although they, yeah, they do serve different functions in the story, they potentially come from the same place. But you're not going to put a number on it? No, I don't, I don't know. Because you get some bad pictures and you get some good words and vice versa. I don't know. Can't do it. Lizzie Stewart there, giving a masterclass in avoiding the question. We'll be posting some of Lizzie's sketches on Twitter, Instagram and on our brand new Mastodon account. While Gorgon features strange goings-on in the woods, the unnatural is a little closer to home in Diana Evans' broth. When I caught up with her in South London, I started by asking her to give us a little taste of her story. In the end, they decided to go to Bone Daddy's. It was full of mist and people and shishimi and chicken stock. Outside, Soho was wrapped in ice, so cold it was invisible, all vapour and city lights. Halfway through her ramen, Tanya said she wanted to go out dancing afterwards because she never went dancing anymore. It was a grave loss from her life, and Sherry agreed she hadn't been lately. Elise was non-committal, saying she needed to get her eight hours. Sleep is overrated, Tanya said. We need less as we get older. I can manage on five now. I bet that's a myth. My dad sleeps until noon every day, and he's 87. Really? Elise said, 87? They were on high bar stools by the wall, and everything around them seemed young. The voices, the colours, the faces, the waiters. You just have a lot of energy, Tanya, Sherry said. You have that superhuman ability to never show tiredness. I have suitcases under my eyes. Look at them. 
I'm thinking about getting some work done. Don't, don't do it, Tanya said. I'm thinking about it. You'll regret it. Have you already had something done? Elise asked. There's something different about you. I can't put my finger on it. So, where did it start? What was the first ingredient for your broth? I'm often inspired by stories that I read by other short story writers. I was thinking about James Salter's stories in this case. He has this very minimalist style, um, but he manages to get quite deeply into the psychologies of characters and to, to create a very visceral kind of atmospheric world that you feel enfolded in. And I was trying to um, find ways of creating that effect by not giving too much information and kind of hinting at things. But I'm interested in female friendships and the way they change as women age and women's self-image and, and how that changes and how women keep things from one another as they grow older as a way of self-protection or, or something. So I was thinking about all that when I was approaching this story. Is that something you specifically do when you're thinking about a new short story, look at other short stories? Or is it something that also works for novels? Well, I'm always reading short stories and most of my favourite writers are short story writers. And whenever I read a story that I like, I just make notes all over it and, and I'm thinking about the structure and the style in terms of my own work and, and my own characters and the kinds of locales that I want to create. And I try and, without copying, it's more not being ashamed of my influences and drawing on them quite clearly. I really like James Baldwin's stories as well, the richness of them. He's a very different writer from um, James Salter, obviously, and Lucia Berlin. And I mean, I'm always making notes when I'm reading and thinking, oh, I'd like to write a story like that or in that kind of style. And, and I use it as a way in, really, to, to my own writing, to locate my own writing. Interesting you talk about the location as well. It made me want to go eat ramen. I did it. That's, that's great. And, uh, you know, that Soho atmosphere late at night, it's so kind of infectious and unforgettable and it's so full of life yeah that sense that when they go off that they could go anywhere yeah exactly I really wanted to try and capture that but do it by not saying too much you know and because I think I have the heart of a poet I actually started <laughs> off writing poetry a long time ago and it never quite worked for me because I found the form of it too limiting but at the same time it's always the impression of something that you're trying to create in a poem so I'm always using description a lot and colours and particular, you know, specific objects or images. I hold on to them and use them and try and fixate them within the sentences that lead somewhere. I think that's what poetry is lacking for me, that sense of leading on to, to something else and the, the kind of the narrative, that strong narrative structure that, that I like. Because that's something you do so well here. I mean, like, as you say, like James Salter, with very few means, those specifics get you quite a long, elusive way. Yeah, and you can actually go quite far with very little. And I've learnt that, actually, from a long time writing. One of the things, though, that you wanted to tackle, it seems to me, is, is female friendships, the things they talk about and, and the things they don't. I'm always interested in, in how women speak to one another. I think when I first started writing uh, fiction, I was quite scared of dialogue. But now I just, I just can't get enough of dialogue. So I find myself moving into dialogue quite easily and quite quickly. But I wanted to try and capture the 
the rhythms of the way these women speak to one another, you know, black British women, uh, they've been at university together and have these long-standing friendships, but that have experienced peaks and troughs and there's dynamics between them. It's a threesome, so there's a sense of one of the characters feeling slightly distant from the two other characters and she's also in this very vulnerable place herself so it was really trying to explore those um, complex dynamics between the, the dynamics of the conversation in some sense as well yeah exactly and the way people say things to one another that aren't necessarily true or accurate and the way people kind of hide from each other especially in these very social situations I think people are often afraid to be honest with one another and I think it's a state of being that can intensify as one gets older. You mean it's harder to kind of break out and, and say things that you really mean? Yeah, I mean, I think we move further and further away from that as we go through life. You know, kids are so open and honest. That's what's so wonderful about them. But then I think as people get older, there's more at stake and there's that appearances thing and that sense of what have I achieved? Have I achieved enough? Uh, who am I now? That sense of identity and how that changes as you grow older. I think there's a lot of pressure on women to achieve and at the same time to have these very successful lives and, and to have it all, the sense that you can have it all. But how do women actually feel within themselves as individuals? That's what I'm interested in. Mm, mm. One of the things they do manage to talk about is cosmetic surgery. I mean, like Tanya, do you find it disturbing, that idea that it's easy to correct yourself, that the whole world is going to be fake? Yeah, I find it strange how on the radio now you can hear adverts for your nose done or your face done or, or your eyes top. And it's become completely normalised <laughs> now. And it's it's more and more common now to see women walking around who've had work done. And it's, and it's obvious, lip Botox and eye lifts and all that. It's, it's just becoming more and more commonplace. And I do find that quite disturbing because I know young people not personally but I know of young people who have worked on very early in their late teens mm. early 20s because they're not happy mm. with themselves why have we reached this point where women aren't allowed to just be their own physical selves it seems that we live in a world that that makes it very difficult for women to accept themselves physically and there's so much imagery around us that I think is harmful to women's self-esteem do you think that's another of those areas in where women find it difficult, or I think people indeed find it difficult to admit to what's going on, to have those honest conversations you were talking about? Yeah, there's this there's this sense of hiding and that you can hide behind this perfected version of yourself and that the real you has to be kept hidden from other people or there's this fear that it won't be accepted, that it's not good enough, it's not right. Even among our closest friends? Yeah, exactly, because those are the people who know us best, mm. you know? <laughs> They're the hardest to hide from. Yeah, absolutely. It's clear within the first few pages of your novels, The Wonder and Ordinary People, that many of your main characters are people of colour, but there's very little to identify the ethnicity of the women in broth. Is that just a question of space? Well, it's a question of just writing from inside these characters' lives and inside their world, and there being no reason, really, to state that they are people of colour. In the same way that mainstream writing, we assume that it's featuring white people. I think there's more and more people of colour now in mainstream fiction, which is great. And that has been a long time coming and we need more and more of it, obviously. But there's never been a reason for a white writer to state that the characters are white. And why should there be for any writer of colour to say, OK, these characters are brown or black or... Whatever, it's just completely unnecessary. It's ridiculous, really, to 
put that in a story just as a way of the reader identifying who these people are. It's unnecessary. I think whatever's in the story, it has to be justified. Everything in a story has to be justified. You know, every sentence you have to ask yourself, does it belong there? Is it needed? And if it's not, then you, you turn it out. I've always written in that way from, from inside my character's world, so I've, so I've never felt the need to state um, state who they are in racial terms. Mm. The story is about, it's dealing with universal themes, really. Um, this is a story about friendship and about the onset of illness and about self-image and identity and ageing. And these are themes that anyone can relate to that don't really have any racial or racialized dimension to them. And I think if we can think about literature and ideas in that way, especially in the writing by people of colour, where the content is kind of almost de-racialized, where there isn't this layer of race that is applied to the work, as if that somehow belongs to the work, or if that's a theme that is supposed to be dealt with in this piece of work because it's by a person of colour. I think if we can move away from that, then that will open up literature by writers of colour in, in a way that I think is really necessary. Just because you happen to be black as a writer, why should you necessarily be, always be writing about that as a subject? Yeah, exactly. And I feel that it's the race is... It's a problematic part of the world and it needs to be addressed by everybody, not just people of colour in their writing. Is it difficult for your work to be seen outside that framework? I don't think so. I think increasingly now, I think things are definitely changing and I think there's more and more commercial fiction now by writers of colour and you know literary fiction as well. And I think there is less of this automatic assumption that this is writing by someone of colour and they are addressing race. Uh, I do still think that the publishing industry does think a lot in an unbalanced way in terms of race when they're thinking about writers of colour and how to publish them. I think there's still a tendency to publish writers of colour in racialized terms and that's something that we still grapple with. You know, what a book looks like, the audience that it's marketed to, you know, blurbs, things like that. That is something that I'm that I'm always aware of, that I don't want my writing to be marketed as black writing because I think that's like a nonsensical term. And I think that the publishing industry as a whole still has a way to go. It's something that we always have to grapple with as the writers, but I think the more we do that and the more of us there are, and also the more people of colour working in publishing companies, you know, I think we will get there and we're going in the right direction, definitely. It's not just publishing either. I mean, in Woolworth Library, yeah. ordinary people is shelved under fiction, whereas The Wonder is shelved under black writing. Oh, is it? Interesting. That's funny, isn't it? I wonder why what the distinction is. As you say, it, it seems to make very little sense. It does make very little sense, Your next novel is due out in April, which is a follow-up to Ordinary People. Um, can you tell us a little about that now? Yes, well, it's a sequel. It's virtually a sequel to Ordinary People. And it begins eight years after the end of Ordinary People. And it takes the same characters, but it foregrounds the mother character, who's an elderly Nigerian woman who wants to go back to Nigeria to live after having lived in London for 50 years and raised her children. Her estranged husband has passed away. She therefore wants to go back and see out her days in the land of her birth. And it's about the problems that it causes within her, the family, uh, about sibling relationships, and also it's about the idea of home and what we call home 
and whether it's possible to make a real home in an, in a new country. There's another strand to the story which features Michael and Melissa, who are the two main characters in Ordinary People. Michael is now married, and so there's a love triangle between him and his new wife and Melissa, who he is still essentially in love with. So there are two strands to the story, and there's actually a third strand to do with Damien and Stephanie, who also were the second couple in Ordinary People. So I felt like I hadn't finished with those characters, <laughs> yet they've stayed with me, and I think eventually there might be a third, it might be a trilogy eventually. That question of home and that question of families having to deal with different conceptions of home is one that can really tear things apart. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, in the UK, we live in such a moment now where the whole idea of home is so loaded. The book actually begins with the Grenfell fire in the background, which raised and still raises huge questions about who is really at home in this country and how we treat people who come here and how welcome do they ever really feel is it possible to ever really feel accepted in the UK? And also there's, you know, there's other kinds of home as well. A person can be a home to somebody else. Your own self can be a home. So it's really dissecting the idea of home politically, but also kind of spiritually as well and psychologically. Are we ever really at home indeed? That was Diana Evans. To read Broth and all these amazing stories, just spark up your mobile, tablet or laptop then head to fictionable.world. You'll need to make sure you're subscribed. Look for subscribe in the menu on the right-hand side and you'll get a year's worth of brand new short fiction and graphic stories for £20, plus access to a steadily growing archive of stories from writers including Sarah Hall, Alan Mabonku, Evie Wilde, Amy Sackville and Isabel Greenberg. That's all for this time, so thanks to Diana Evans, Yan Yan Kerr, Carlos Rojas, Ross Raisin, Lizzie Stewart and, of course, Ros Denis who stepped in to read Ali Smith's story, Wake. Tell us what you made of it all at Fictional World on Twitter, at Fictional World on Instagram, at Fictional on our brand new Mastodon, or via steam-powered email on info at Fictional World. So from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokujeni, thanks for listening and goodbye.